Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello and welcome from downtown Minneapolis. I'm your host, Carlos Gago, and this is part two of episode four covering the rise of the private security industry, the current role it's playing in Minneapolis politics, and the ideologies that justify this industry as necessary. Uh, in part one, we covered Louis Althusser's theory of ideology, ideological and repressive state apparatuses. Uh, and we also looked at examples of how ideology functions by briefly analyzing a children's book about Chief Arredondo and Mayor Fry, as well as the emergence of Blue Lives Matter as an identity politics. Um, in the second part, We'll take a look at how state apparatuses are coordinating here in Minneapolis to silent protests against the continued use of lethal force by law enforcement, whether it's the Minneapolis Police Department, county sheriffs, or federal task forces. We will specifically be focusing on the murders of Winston Smith and Deanna Marie Erickson as case studies in how ideology and state apparatuses work together to suppress the reality of police violence in Minneapolis and in the U.S. generally. But before looking at the situation here in Minneapolis, I wanted to give a brief account of how I was personally introduced to the increased coordination, if you will, between different repressive state apparatuses. Uh, in the U.S., uh, I was doing research, uh, again, at the U.S.-Mexico border during the summer of 2019 when I learned uh, from a close friend who had been the city attorney that Nogales police officers were working in coordination with U.S. Border Patrol agents. Uh, when I asked why and how this was legal, he informed me that the feds basically paid more and local police officers were more interested in making extra money than serving the actual city that paid their salaries. While the question of legality was and remains somewhat nebulous, uh, as many of those coordinated operations are classified as confidential by the Department of Homeland Security. And as many of us know all too well, proving illegality within law enforcement is extremely difficult, not just because of the thin blue line code of silence that exists in these forces, but also due to the economic and political powers invested in maintaining this kind of silence or secrecy, uh, which first which was frustratingly obvious in the Winston Smith case, well, where no video footage was made available because it supposedly doesn't exist. One of many facts that we'll break down a bit later in this episode. In preparing for this episode, I did some quick research on any ongoing coordination that may exist between the U.S. Border Patrol and the Nogales Police Department, uh, and I actually came across a press release from 2017 that was published on the official page of the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol website. Uh, it was modified in February of this year under the Biden administration. Apparently, all federal press releases are subject to modification once a new administration takes power. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not or how it works, but there was just a note there that it had been modified of, uh, this year. Anyway, the press release states how a Nogales police officer working in support of the federal enforcement program known as Operation Stone Garden. And now Operation Stone Garden support, uh, is defined as the following quote, it supports enhanced cooperation and coordination among customs and border protection, border protection, United States border patrol and local tribal territorial state and federal law enforcement agencies. End quote. So that's the official description. Anyway, this Nogales police officer who was working uh, with Operation Stone Garden arrested a U.S. citizen and seized a stolen car containing thousands of rounds of ammunition. Now, how did this local Nogales cop come to know about this vehicle? Well, that's where the coordination comes in, and this has actually happened to me personally. Uh, the Border Patrol basically call in local law enforcement to investigate 
uh, local citizens that they find suspicions suspicious. Uh, and in my case, I was stopped on the grounds of quote being a suspicious-looking vehicle. Uh, I guess driving one uh, and that's basically it I was just guilty of being suspicious and honestly suspicious to people who don't even live in Ogallis because law enforcement agents are generally discouraged from living in the towns or cities that they actually police so for example a large percentage of Minneapolis police uh, department officers actually don't live within the city limits of Minneapolis uh, itself so this uh, applies also to federal agents that work for uh, agencies such as uh, Border uh, Customs and Border Patrol. So uh, I know this for a fact. Uh, I've seen it uh, evolve in Ogallis from knowing the people that were working either for ICE or for uh, Border Patrol personally from having people from other states, specifically Texas and New Mexico, uh, come and start taking those jobs. And the people that you knew... Um, that were from that town being uh, relocated elsewhere. Anyway, in this specific case, I was uh, called and as a suspicious uh, looking vehicle, but fortunately the cop that ended up pulling me over was a friend, uh, a high school friend of mine that graduated in the same class as I did, uh, which ironically allowed me the liberty of asking what's up. Uh, and he told me that the Border Patrol had called me in as a suspicious vehicle for driving around town. And all I was doing was just checking out how Nogales had changed since the last time I was there. Because it seemed more Orwellian than what I remember. The streets were kind of empty and it seemed kind of depressed. And uh, this incident that happened to me kind of proved my point in terms of that impression. Uh, I share this anecdote to personally testify to the truth of coordinated repressive state uh, operations, if you will, and the profiling that uh, accompany uh, such uh, coordinated efforts. So uh, returning to the 2017 press release, uh, Border Patrol agents contacted the Nogales police uh, to report a suspicious, a suspicious vehicle seen driving around a business complex that sounds familiar to me, uh, when this officer who was participating in Operation Stone Garden arrived to investigate, discovered that the vehicle had been reported as stolen in New Mexico, which obviously resulted in an immediate arrest. Upon seizing and inspecting the vehicle, officers found 6,000 rounds of 7.62 millimeter ammunition. Now, that's basically your AR-15 ammo uh, that's also used for other medium-sized rifles, including some uh, versions of sniper rifles or some models and the truth is that you can actually buy this ammunition online and have it delivered to your house uh, this is illegal in the same way that transporting and selling cigarettes from the back of your car in a parking lot is illegal in the sense that both products are highly available except that you need a license to sell them the main point is not the 6,000 rounds of ammunition since that can be actually that, that can actually be acquired legally uh, even if in this case they were being transported illegally and more than likely to be sold or transferred to a buyer, I don't know. Uh, and to be fair, I don't know if you can buy 6,000 rounds at once. I've never really tried uh, to do that. Uh, feel free to uh, engage in that experiment. But um, yeah, that was uh, what was found in the car, 6,000 rounds of ammunition. What I consider important in this uh, is actually found in the last sentence of the press release. Quote, Operation Stone Garden is a Department of Homeland Security program that grants funds to other law enforcement agencies to enhance and strengthen border security throughout the United States. End quote. So the extent of the coordination that has been developing between enforcement agencies after the formation of Homeland Security post 9-11 uh, is not something we as a public are often informed about. Uh, don't be fooled into believing that such coordination has no impact on your civil liberties as a citizen. They have $90 million in, in a grant fund budget for this year alone, uh, as documented on the Homeland Security Grants website. So it's apparent that Nogales police officers are indeed getting paid to respond to Border Patrol security concerns, which based on my own lived experience, are usually the result of anonymous tips or good old-fashioned profiling like they did in my case. 
and I was allowed to leave since I wasn't breaking any laws, although my uh, ex-high school classmate did tell me to go home and stay off the streets because nobody cruise, quote-unquote, cruise the streets of Nogales anymore, uh, and that I just needed to stay off the streets due to uh, border patrol concerns. So it was obvious to me that uh, the border patrol had in many ways taken over the job of policing Nogales uh, and that the police department was in many ways now uh, another branch of the border patrol uh, in terms of service uh, and uh, payment. So how does all this relate to what's happening in Minneapolis? Uh, well, for that, we need to give a brief overview of how the recent tensions in Uptown started. As previously stated, tensions began with the killing and many would argue assassination of Winston Smith on June 3rd of this year. Uh, the same day the city was removing barricades at George Floyd Square in order to reopen the streets to vehicular traffic, something that I think is pretty much close to complete at this point uh, which is actually kind of sad since i spent a couple of morally uplifting weekend afternoons just walking around george floyd square so i have first-hand experience at what a wonderful site it was for community healing support and just general interaction uh, but uh, that's gone uh, now to my knowledge so Anyway, the North Star Fugitive Task Force, under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Marshal's Office, killed Smith while he was out on a date with a woman who would later claim, through her attorney, that Smith was unarmed at the time of the shooting, contradicting the initial claim by authorities that Smith was shot because he supposedly opened fire on law enforcement first. What is even more outrageous is the fact that, according to officials, no video, no video of the killing exists because none of the officers involved had their body cameras on. Moreover, none of the unmarked law enforcement vehicles had dash cam video of Smith's killing because the U.S. Marshal's Office supposedly does not allow either body or dash cams. This claim by the Marshal's Office was proven untrue when the U.S. Attorney's Office confirmed that body cam policy was rescinded last year and marshals and deputized local, local law enforcement are allowed to wear them. This of course led to another amended statement by the U.S. Marshals Office saying that these task forces aren't required to wear body cams. Note that this is another example of why police reform continually fails. They lie about not being allowed to wear body cams and then confess that they're not required required to wear them which means that they choose not to wear them so much for accountability and transparency in this case and i want to give a clear picture of just how many repressive state apparatuses coordinated to hunt down and kill winston smith according to unicorn riot and this is documented elsewhere quote officers at the incident taking part in the task force were from anoka Hennepin and Ramsey County Sheriff's Offices, the Minnesota Department of Corrections, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, all led by the U.S. Marshals Service, end quote. So, three different counties and deputies that, again, more than likely have already worked with the federal task forces before Smith's killing, so three different county sheriff departments, Minnesota State Correctional Officers, why, I don't know, they must have a special ops unit within prisons with special assets, as they're called. Um, ICE was there. What the hell uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement is doing there is, is beyond my understanding. I mean, was Winston Smith undocumented? Uh, and of course, the always trustworthy U.S. Marshal's Office, um, and I say that only because of their changing narrative around uh, what happened that day. Anyway, that's six agencies coordinating to basically kill one man and then cover it up. Again, there's a link to this story in the show notes, uh, along with other um, uh, other sources covering the story. So please check them out, uh, uh, especially Unicorns Riots, as their timeline and uh, information around Smith's killing is uh, excellent, in my opinion. However, I do want to be fair and call attention to a point raised in the story, and I quote here, Ramsey County Sheriff Bob Fletcher said that the U.S. Marshals have repeatedly denied requests for his deputies to be allowed to wear body cameras while working on the task force. 
after receiving a voicemail from the head of the U.S. Marshals in Minnesota, Ramona Doman, a Trump appointee, by the way, on June 7th, in which Doman explained that allowing the use of body cameras, quote, could take a while to be instilled, Sheriff Fletcher pulled his deputies from the federal task force. The, the sheriffs in Hennepin and Anoka counties also say they suspended their participation in the task force until they are allowed to wear body cameras. I'm not going to comment more beyond what I just read as I can't confirm or disconfirm that these county sheriff offices have indeed ceased to participate in such task forces until they're actually allowed to wear body cams. I can only hope it's true and that they're holding a the line on that specific issue. Uh, back to uh, Smith's killing on June 3rd. Not only were repressive state mechanisms highly active on that day, but they were seemingly coordinating with ideological apparatuses equally busy in obfuscating the reality surrounding Smith's death. Uh, this was especially apparent in mainstream news agencies like the Star Tribune, which initially reported that Smith was, a, was wanted as a murder suspect. U.S. Marshals later announced that they were actually after Smith because he was wanted for a felony gun possession, a significantly lesser charge. So this warrant was issued because Smith failed to show for a sentencing, uh, for a sentencing hearing regarding uh, a gun possession charge. Uh, and just to be clear and fair, I'm going to quote from a Rolling Stone article that goes into more detail about this specific issue. Smith pleaded guilty to aggravated robbery in a 2017 case involving an ex-girlfriend. According to news reports, he received a suspended sentence, and on probation, he was prohibited from having a firearm. In 2019, he was charged for having a gun under his car seat. He reportedly reached a plea deal in la last November and was facing a four-year prison term. In a video from February, and this video is available, and I've seen it. I think Unicorn Riot has a, a link to it. Uh, Smith railed against the sentence. This is Smith. The situation was, it was just a gun somewhere around me, and they want me to do four years because of that. I didn't have the gun. I didn't shoot nobody. I didn't kill nobody, he said. Smith reportedly missed a sentencing court date in May, which led to the warrant for his arrest. So, to those journalists paying attention, uh, the reason for the warrant was clear. Moreover, to be fair, it must be said that felony gun possession is not an uncommon charge in the U.S., if only because of the number of firearms that exist in the country. Uh, to put it uh, in perspective, in 2020 alone, the Department of Justice charged more than 14,200 Americans with firearm-related crimes, most being possession charges. So. Uh, this is, again, not uncommon. Nevertheless, the Star Tribune allowed their misinformation about Smith being wanted for murder to remain online for five days, uh, essentially a business week, uh, festering bias against Smith's killing as legally justified, even without proof. Uh, the ideological narrative being that the task force removed a violent criminal from the larger Minneapolis community, thus we should be grateful. Uh, and I'm not saying the Star Tribune said that, I'm saying that's the underlying ideological narrative. When the Star Tribune finally removed their incorrect news tweet, uh, they blamed unverified police scanner chatter for their error very Pulitzer of them. Anyway, my main point is that Smith's killing and the state coordination that followed is a ready-made example of how ideology functions as an imaginary relationship to real conditions of existence. In this case, we have the imaginary or ideological quote, a reality, where Smith is a murder suspect who shoots at law enforcement and is justifiably killed by officers defending themselves all without video evidence. So we have to accept and believe the federal task force's claim that it was all legally justified and ethically necessary, even if their initial report about why video footage wasn't available was misleading, perhaps even intentionally false. Again, this is a classic example of how state apparatuses work together to reframe our lived reality into an imaginary, sometimes fantastical narrative that helps maintain the status quo while 
you know, at least they try. And I only say that because of what eventually uh, transpired after Winston Smith's killing. My point here is that the state will use all the apparatuses at its disposal to get ahead of the story and control the narrative. They will even spin the story so that reality gets mystified in the narrative framing, leaving people to wonder what happened or what is actually real. Uh, just think of the supposed quote-unquote mystery that still surrounds something like the assassination of JFK. Uh, obviously, the state has one story, and that's the one we're supposed to believe that there was, you know, one shooter, Lee, Har Lee Harvey Oswald, and he was caught and somehow mysteriously murdered in the basement of the Dallas police headquarters by Jack Ruby, a club owner with suspected ties to the mob. Uh, and we're supposed to believe that he, Ruby just did this because he was motivated uh, by frustrated patriotism or some kind of debt or uh, I don't know what the motivation was, but we're just supposed to believe that Ruby was somehow connected. Uh, if you look at it closely, it seems like a stretch, uh, but that's the imaginary side of ideology for you, right? We're supposed to believe uh, an imaginary relationship to reality regardless of how fantastical that imaginary relationship uh, may appear to be to us. Anyway, back in Minneapolis, as word of Smith's killing circulated on social media, the lack of transparency and intentional misinformation campaign by the state exacerbated the already broken trust in law enforcement and their propagandistic narrative surrounding the use of lethal force. So people began showing up uptown, particularly around the Seven Points area where Stella's Fish Cafe is located, uh, the last place Smith visited while on his date, and the place authorities tracked him to using his social media post. Now, of all places Smith had been, this is where and when the feds decided to strike uptown while he's on a date. People specifically showed up to protest the lack of transparency, right? The fact that there was no footage, uh, the lack of accountability. No politician had talked about it or wanted to talk about it. No officers' names were, were released uh, due to it being a federal operation. Uh, and they were also protesting the literal framing of Smith as a dangerous criminal on the run, which was uh, mostly the Star Tribune. Uh, so what proceeded was a textbook example of how capitalist interests work in coordination with state forces to suppress such grassroots efforts at holding the state accountable. And know that this is because police are hired to protect property over people in this country. And that's just a historical fact. I mean, feel free to just, for example, I don't know, look into how workers were brutalized in Chicago at the behest of business owners in the early 1900s. Uh, if you want a historical uh, example or evidence of the fact that this uh, has and is the case in the United States. These confrontations uptown first started with protests around the site of Smith's murder. Uh, police showed up in force, actually pointing weapons, and these were not the non-lethal types, at protesters. Needless to say, the police crackdown on the initial protests was successful, but temporary. Uh, the show of force seemed to have motivated activists to match uh, police aggression. Uh, thus, and I quote here, after police broke up the protest, around 100 masked youth descended on the upwardly mobile neighborhood in a game of cat and mouse with mobile police forces. The rowdy crowd smashed windows of corporate stores, taunted police and threw rocks at their vehicles. So. For many people, this kind of rowdy behavior absolutely warrants a strong police response, uh, even if violent and aggressive. And for example, I had a weird, surprising, honestly unwelcomed conversation with uh, an elderly gentleman, uh, an African-American hairstylist, uh, who wasn't the person cutting my hair that time. Uh, he just decided to interject and communicate that he personally believes young people are acting like animals right now and that such state actions are more than warranted, even if it entails militarization. He was ex-military. Uh, it was uh, stimulating 
conversation to say the least and cordial uh, but we obviously disagreed on the issue of whether or not it's healthy to have the military or paramilitary uh, troops policing civilians on domestic soil or anywhere to be honest but um yeah Anyway, by June 6th, uh, three days after Smith's murder, the uh, Minneapolis Police Department uh, were showing up with AR-15s equipped with suppressors uh, to the protest site, which uh, those uh, suppressors basically function like silencers. Uh, this obvious show of force was meant to intimidate protesters into withdrawing from the upwardly mobile neighborhood since a George Floyd Square situation would have a negative impact on uptown business traffic and property values. Uh, this particular message from the state was abundantly clear. Memorialization was not going to happen uh, uptown. But people refused to be intimidated, and so a memorial space was nevertheless carved out, uh, despite the state's attempt to repress the fact that another black man had been killed in Minneapolis seemingly without cause, and, and this in the face of political posturing regarding reforms, transparency, and accountability. So all in all, not a good look for the city. Ten days after Smith's killing on June 13th, Intolerance for protesters turned to murder when Nicholas Krauss uh, drove his car into the protest site, which up to then had been guarded by uh, individuals after several attempts at dismantling the small memorial that had been erected at the site. Uh, Krauss's vehicular attack resulted in the murder of Deanna Marie Erickson, uh, in addition to injuring several other people. When his car hit Deanna's vehicle, which then hit her, uh, she had been sitting near her car on the sidewalk when the attack happened. Um, it should be noted that Diana's vehicle was parked where it was on the street to protect the site and fellow activists. And it was only because Diana's car was positioned uh, where it was that a mass vehicular murder uh, was potentially avoided that day. Uh, but praise for the quick actions of bystanders, including the medics, wasn't the immediate response from police officers arriving on the scene according to the people who were there, nor was it the news report initially released by the Star Tribune again. Uh, and here I'm quoting from Unicorn Riot. Witnesses state that the driver revved his engine from a few blocks away, continued to gain speed, and revved the engine again before the fatal collision. The driver got out of his vehicle and tried to run, according to witnesses. Activist Tony Clark detained the driver and turned him over to police who greeted protesters seeking help with pepper spray and riot gear instead of ambulance and EMTs. I'm skipping ahead a little bit uh, on the story. Visible and Max, and this is Lavish Mac, who had also been present uh, at the protest, and I think he was a friend of uh, Deanna Marie, and uh, he was streaming live from his Instagram uh, immediately after Krauss drove his car into the crowd. So this is who uh, Lavish Mac is. Visible in Max's stream is Krauss, the driver of the car, being detained by Clark and turned over to police, the quick reactions of the medics to attend to Diana, and the police response to the traumatized activist. Below, and this is a story in Unicorn Riot, below is a clip from Max's stream showing an officer screaming at Mac that an ambulance, quote, would be here a lot sooner if you weren't in the fucking street, end quote. So, Based on the accounts of people who were actually there documenting interactions between police and protesters following the attack, you can clearly see that law enforcement blames the victims of the attack, in this case of protesters, even when it's obvious that they, law enforcement, failed in their duty to, quote, protect and serve. And I experienced some of this weird indifference last summer uh, when uh, I was, I ended up accidentally, not intentionally, but accidentally serving as a traffic marshal during the uh, protest downtown uh, there was like a squad i guess you would call them platoon i don't know what they were called but a considerable amount of bike cops a block away from uh, where people were uh, marching and uh they were just watching as this truck sped by with absolutely no intention of stopping for the pedestrians who were uh marching at that point so the crowd had to like part the street you know and uh 
parted like the Red Sea, and this was happening on a crosswalk too downtown. I'm thinking of my about Nicolette, I think, or uh, Marquette, one of those streets uh, that he was coming down. down. And uh, the the cops just let this speeding truck pass by, looking on indifferently, not bothering to pursue it or even get its plates, uh, because it kept watching us the whole time. And that's just a fact. Uh, I just I noted it when when I was reading some of these uh, accounts that reminded me of that specific moment. Like whatever well, happens to you, happens to you. You're choosing to be out here. So to me, it seemed like it. it it seems to me like police can't stand the idea that people can protect themselves and take care of one another without state intervention and that law enforcement is actually an impediment to such efforts at least that's this the vibe that i got that day in this with this video and what i what's uh, visible in that video reminds me of uh, they get angry at the people that are actually there helping rather than working with those people uh, so the film the interaction between officers and protesters immediately following the Anna Marie's murder is one of several documented examples that have uh, similar interactions uh, during the last two years alone, not only here in uh, Minneapolis, but um, elsewhere throughout the U.S. Um, in addition to this aggressive and unsympathetic response to the victims, of the vehicular attack, the ideological apparatus known as the Star Tribune was hard at work framing the narrative around the attack in such a manner as to make Krauss the victim of assault by protesters despite being the assailant. And here I'm just quoting from the Star Tribune's news tweet. A man drove into and killed a woman among protesters at an uptown Minneapolis intersection, intersection late Sunday night then was pulled from the vehicle and assaulted authority said so according to the star tribune the person who killed a woman was not apprehended by protesters because that would require giving them some credit like the way cornell west gave anti-fascist anti-fascist credit for saving his and other people's lives in charlottesville a few years back when heather Heyer was also killed in a vehicular attack uh, so, since the Star Tribune is an ideological state apparatus, in my mind, um, it can't give protesters credit for apprehending a murderer. Uh, so, they initially framed them as assaulting a man who just killed a fellow protester while she was attempting to protect the same group from such attacks, ironically. So, in summary, police blame protesters for the attack because they're just there. And the Star Tribune goes with the police chatter version of the story and reports an assault rather than an immediate apprehension slash handover to law enforcement, which is what happened uh, by the same protesters that had just been attacked. Somehow, the North Star Fugitive Task Force choosing to kill Smith in that location during business hours with no vi video evidence that the killing was justified is not the problem that resulted in Diana's tragic death. No, it's the people who aren't willing to just let it go uh, that present a threat to uptown and are an impediment to law and order, not the fact that the feds chose to murder a person in that location. This is exactly the relationship between uptown businesses and law enforcement that explains how this story evolved to include you know the ideological narrative of a self-appointed crime-fighting landlord slash realtor or whatever um, as well as the chicago-based realty company uh, that bought the seven points indoor shopping mall in uptown uh, recently and by recently i mean i think a few years ago uh, that's now hired private paramilitarized uh, security uh, so but before we get into that let me just describe this uh, uh, and many of you have probably read about him this online crime fighter uh, in an effort to begin to describe Steve Taylor the uh, local internet personality and self-appointed uh, online crime fighter uh, I'm simply just going to quote from a November 25th 2020 online article published by the Southwest Journal southwestjournal.com uh, where they interview Steve uh, and you can find a link to all these uh, unicorn riots in this uh, 
Southwest Journal article and everything else that I reference in the show notes at um, theidentityparadox.com. Um, so they obviously interviewed Steve, so I'm just going to comment on the ideological role Steve plays um, afterwards. Quote, Atop Snow Slick Mount Curve Avenue, local internet personality Steve Taylor threw open the front door of one of the mansions opposite Thomas Lowry Park, wearing a pair of dappled lizard shoes. He's a leggy, unsmiling 37-year-old man with a business crew cut and the collar of his wool jacket flipped up. And there's a picture if you're actually interested in confirming this, so I'm skipping ahead in the article. Uh, he, Steve, blasts his views liberally across the Uptown Crime Facebook group, a virtual neighborhood watch he started in June, uh, June 2020. The page now boasts over 15,000 members. Most are lurkers whose politics are impossible to pinpoint, but those who regularly weigh in agree with him that the defund faction of the city council is, quote, disconnected from reality. Here I'm skipping ahead to an actual quote from Steve himself. Everyone needs to be safe. No justice, no peace. No peace, no justice, right? He asks provocatively, turning a sacred activist slogan on its head. End quote from the uh, article. And so the story goes on to describe some of the ups and downs of such online crime groups. Uh, but it mostly puts a positive spin on Uptown Steve and his efforts to extend the privilege of police protection to all citizens. Even so, the story does address some of the concerns that many citizens have raised about this crime-fighting Facebook group, including the president of the Uptown Association, which ironically represents the commercial district. Um, the following gives you an idea of why such concerns exist, even among business owners. Quote, In some circles, Taylor and Uptown Crime have a less-than-stellar reputation. He's well aware. Online, people call him racist and bootlicker and make fun of how he looks in Facebook photos. And he honestly kind of does invite the criticism with his posturing or posing. That's just me, though. A, you know, editorial input. Uh, quote continues. The Google reviews on his real estate business are a mess. Uh, and I've added a link to a site that lists the various violations associated with some of his properties. If you're interested in looking at that, that is not a Google review. That's just a different site that, I guess, tracks that stuff. Quote continues, part of it is because Crime Watch social media is notorious for devolving into sucking vortexes of racist, anti-city toxicity that trap people in reality-warping echo chambers that make light of police misconduct. Sounds like a great Facebook group. To forestall that fate, Uptown Crime accepts only self-proclaimed Minneapolis residents who avow Black Lives Matter to them, bans national politics, and encourages people to argue with fact and logic rather than ad hominem insults. And apparently this doesn't apply to fact checkers uh, as the same published story that I'm quoting from has a comment section with three comments. And it's actually two people talking to each other, uh, exchanging testimonials about getting about how they were kicked off the Uptown Crime uh, Facebook group for calling Steve out on incorrect accusations. So apparently you're um, included in the group until you disagree with Steve on an actual fact and hold him accountable for his mistake. Um, he might kick you off for that reason. The main reason I want to highlight Uptown Steve is because he's a, his form of community policing is one of the reasons that Uptown is so property value conscious and how this existential investment in financial investments fuels a pro-law enforcement mindset that frames protesters as threats and potential criminals regardless of their, of their actions. Uh, their very presence in Uptown as protesters is enough quote, kind of criminal activity to warrant their removal. So when the feds killed Smith in that same location, I thought that the Uptown Crime Group was up in arms about why the North Star Fugitive Task Force would choose to kill a person at that location and what the impact uh, of such police violence would have on local property values. 
the actual killing wasn't deemed threatening to business interests, but calling attention to the killing somehow is harmful. Uh, even when compelled to address this issue, Mayor Fry pivoted to the importance of having a healthy economy. As uh, noted in a Rolling Stone article, and here I'm just going to quote uh, from the Rolling Stone article covering the, uh, the death of Winston Smith. Mayor Jacob Fry has insisted that the intersection must be kept clear and has sent in cops to do the job. Quote, this is a safety concern, Fry said, pivoting quickly to economic concerns. We can't have a major commercial corridor like this shut down, end quote. Fry has also sent a letter to the governor requesting the Minnesota National Guard be placed on standby to, quote, assist in ensuring calm and order throughout the city, end quote. As of Wednesday, and this was published on June 17th of this year, as of Wednesday afternoon, 100 National Guard troops have been activated and were ready to deploy. Now, since Uptown Steve is a pro-law enforcement realtor, his immediate take on the Smith protests and the memorials erected in his memory comes as no surprise, right? Uh, this partly explains why tensions between law enforcement and protesters continue to escalate with people like Uptown Steve contributing through social media and the framing of the protesters as agitators. Uh, no peace, no justice, right? Uh, and honestly, I, I don't even know what that clever little reversal, uh, no peace, no justice, uh, means outside of some kind of authoritarian, ironic humor, which is not my type of humor to me it's like equivalent of blue lives matter as a counter slogan to black lives matter it's just like an empty counter slogan and let me just say that there's just a brief point to make here blue lives matter could actually be interpreted as referring to something real like that are the law enforcement suicide epidemic that's happening right now across the country uh which is very similar to the veteran suicide epidemic uh which both speak to institutional failures. Uh, I mean, just look at the lies we're now privy to regarding the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan. I mean, it was all a lie, and now another chapter in the United States history of failed imperialist aspirations after World War II. You have Korea, Vietnam, now there's Iraq and Afghanistan, and people wonder why vets commit suicide. Uh, maybe that's ponder the absurdity of war, uh, the ethics of what they're being asked to do or did, why their comrades and friends had to die, uh, and to what end. I mean, couldn't the same thing be happening with law, law enforcement? I mean, questioning the actual institutions and their ongoing dysfunction, couldn't that play a big role in the suicide epidemic we're seeing both in the military and in law enforcement that's just an aside but anyway speaking of military uh, i'm going to pivot now to um before we get over an hour uh i'm going to pivot to discuss the role private security firms are playing in uptown and their relation to militarized law enforcement um and by that i mean that these are basically x military people, ex-vets, uh, now uh, working in the private security uh, industry. Attention to the presence of Nathan Seabrook and the Conflict Resolution Group, which is uh, Nathan's uh, company, hired to patrol seven points uptown, began on the evening of July 14th of this year, obviously, so about a month ago when the Conflict Resolution Group private security guards were filmed by activists assaulting a woman outside the parking ramp. And this was on Twitter uh, and probably other social media platforms. Uh, the woman stated that she was there to support those condemning the dismantling of the Winsmary Peace Garden. Uh, and she was assaulted by security guards who refused her entry uh, into the space and the woman claimed that she, the arresting guard punched her in the head multiple times and another one put her in a chokehold. Um, she had to mace one of the guards, I guess, to fight and fight him off in order to free herself. Uh, and she also stated that the police who were nearby did not intervene during the assault despite the commotion. Uh, I wanted to start with this brief anecdote as detailed in an, an excellent article uh, by Left Voice on leftvoice.org. 
uh, entitled Private Cops in Uptown Minneapolis, another tool to maintain the racist capitalist system. And there's a link to the article in the show notes uh, again. So I'm not going to dive too deep into how Nathan Seabrook's conflict resolution group has been involved in escalating tensions uptown, as this Left Voice article does, an excellent job of already kind of detailing those encounters with local activists, as well as, as, well as giving some brief background on Seabrook and the formation of uh, the conflict resolution group. What I'd like to do is give you some insight into the mentality of the private security industry and how they understand and talk about rising tensions in cities like Minneapolis. And uh, Seabrook is apparently from Minnesota, so this is personal to him. Uh, the Left Voice article does document two other encounters between activists trying to find out who this group of armed security guards is accountable to, since they're obviously allowed to physically apprehend activists in the presence of police officers. Uh, so in one incident, in one incident uh, an activist's belongings were confiscated on the spot by the security guards, and they were searched through. Uh, this individual was cited with a letter of trespass. And the second incident is on video and it involves an, a local activist that goes by Comrade Link. Uh, Nathan Seabrook, again, who is uh, central to both incidents, appears in the video apprehending Link and placing him uh, under arrest. Apparently, these private security groups have a lot of freedom when it comes to a citizen's arrests. Uh, they're basically empowered as cops. Uh, moreover, it's obvious that Seabrook is combing through social media to identify local activists because they seem to have recognized Comrade Link uh, when he was taken into police custody uh, and charged with uh, trespassing. How and why this is legal is covered in the Left Voice article as it explains the connections between citizen arrest laws and their colonial legacies around things like slavery. Uh, it also briefly covers uh, Nathan C. Brooks' background, relying on some now-deleted podcast appearances he has made, in which he explains his work, his company, and his general outlook on the future of private security in the U.S. And with all due respect to the author of the Left Voice article, Adnan Ahmed, uh, I researched C. Brooks' suddenly-deleted appearance on the Fearless Mindset podcast, and that's on thefearlessmindsetpodcast.com which itself has since disappeared. I tried to access it today various times and it just wouldn't load. Uh, further intensifying my curiosity about what Seabrook and the host of Fearless Mindset, Mark Ledlow, uh, discuss on the show. So Ledlow's podcast, which launched in August of 2020, so last year in a rather obvious attempt to profit, from the quote social unrest narrative circulating at the time is this is self-described in the following manner the fearless mindset is hosted by mark ledlow the founder of ledlow security group join me ledlow as i interview the security industry's best and brightest to learn about the tactics and strategies they use to protect the world's wealthiest families so you can stay safe during these unprecedented times so that's the description. The podcast, as I said, is no longer available, at least the website, to my knowledge, uh, and that cyber scrubbing began after the Nathan Seabrook interview, which leaves one wondering or to wonder if the interview, uh, coupled with the press that uh, Conflict Resolution Group was getting, created some negative PR for the company and for Ledlow himself, who obviously took down the episode and later the entire site, or at least access to it by non-security professionals like me. Uh, but even my voice calls attention to the sketchy deletion of the podcast interview, and here I quote. In a now-deleted podcast interview, Seabrook talks about jumping on the private security contractor bandwagon after an almost two-decade-long career in the Army and National Guard. Referring to the George Floyd uprising and protests following it, Seabrook lamented that Minnesota had turned into, quote, a shithole. Seabrook and the interviewer, Ludlow, also discussed how cops were resigning in record numbers, creating an environment for private security companies to come in to protect private property. Let me read that. Create an environment for private security companies to come in to protect private property, end quote. 
So as you can tell from this summary, the interview is basically a long advertisement for the private security industry. Uh, most of them seem to be that and why it's becoming more necessary um, for wealthy people, at least uh, as the title of episode 49, for example, indicates Seabrook's episode is number 47. And like I said, that's no longer found on the website. If you get access to the website, maybe it is, but uh, it's not. Uh, episode 48 is 48 is completely gone. So I don't, I don't know who was on that episode, what happened, but that never existed as of this point, uh, which again makes you wonder like, what it was about. But the title of episode 49 of the Fearless Mindset is called Designing Super Yachts and Luxury Charters with Alistair, I believe, Calendar. Or if it's Spanish, Calendar, but I think it's Calendar. So if you want to survive the collapse of civilization on a yacht with your own private security, this episode is for you. And I should note that Ledlow has a YouTube channel. That's where I'm getting a lot of this from. Or some of it, uh, where many of these interviews uh, from the podcast um, are accessible, but Seabrooks is missing from that collection along with others like number 48. So uh, you can access some of these on YouTube, but you're probably wondering, Carlos, <laughs> sorry, how did you get this information if the website has been taken down? Well, like I said, some of it's on YouTube, uh, but internet archive didn't help because Ledlow has been careful about not having his stuff archived nor was YouTube any good to me personally since I already mentioned the strategic uh, editorial cataloging or censoring of episodes on that specific platform but this is why becoming literate and getting an education is important kids because you know this is a kids show and that's who I'm talking to. The internet is a big place, right? And you can't necessarily control the stuff you put out there, uh, including interviews. So after a brief search, and it was brief, I came across a website that actually lists all of the Fearless Mindset episodes, uh, except 48, with descriptions of uh, and actual recordings. Uh, in other words, you can listen to the interviews, even if Letlow did take down his website, if that's the case. I've attached a link in the show notes to this website um, and we'll see how long it stays up after this episode airs. And I'm not praising the importance of this podcast at all. Uh, all I'm saying is that I'm curious to see how up to date Ledlow's OPSEC or operational security is if he is taking down episodes uh, due to whatever reasons. So in my humble contribution to this evolving story slash issue, is a brief summary of the highlights in this now deleted but nevertheless available interview with Nathan Seabrook by Mark Ledlow, two figures in the world of private security. So to begin, the show describes Seabrook in the following terms. Nathan Seabrook is an army veteran having served overseas in Libya for a government agency. For almost 18 years, Nathan Seabrook served as a state army and a national guard. Nate now owns a security company in Minnesota. He is heavily involved in a security capacity supporting the high-profile court case in Minnesota. End quote. Let me read that again. He is heavily involved in a security capacity supporting the high-profile court case in Minnesota. So, it doesn't take a genius to realize that the high-profile court case is Seabrook's role in providing private security during the Shaman trial, which Nate openly talks about, despite this cloak and dagger language in the description. So, yeah, very mysterious. Anyway, around minute 15 of a not very informative or interesting interview, Mark Ledlow is not a great interviewer, if I must be honest. Ledlow compares the group tensions in Libya following the death of Gaddafi with Southeast Los Angeles, quote, cartel turf wars. And to say Southeast Los Angeles is a very specific geodemographic tag, he's basically just saying Latinos, thus uh, cartel turf wars. And this comparison is ridiculously hyperbolic. Uh, but that's what these people think and want you to think. This is their particular ideology, their imaginary relationship to real conditions of existence. And trust me, there's a huge difference between the violence in Libya and that of Southeast LA. Uh, but Seabrook agrees and continues, 
uh, his own stories about Tripoli and his overseas combat experience and his intelligence work um, that he's done with the military as well as his current private contract in Minnesota uh, with, quote, all hell breaking loose again. Seabrook uh, goes on to compare the situation in Minnesota, specifically Minneapolis, to his experience in, quote, other countries like Iraq. To him, Minneapolis resembles a war zone because one person, one of his employees, sees the city as transformed, quote, overnight into a shithole. And we know those terms haven't been weaponized by a former commander-in-chief to describe other nations unbefitting of his approval. Thus, there cannot be a political bias by these um, patriot-slash-security guards, right? I mean... Sure, Seabrook can't be pro-Trump because they're not political, I assume, since the latter attempted a fascist coup in this country, and Nate is obviously a patriot, right? Um, and please don't get me started that, well, you know, Biden is in power now because just look at what's going on with Afghanistan uh, and how prepared we seem as a nation during this withdrawal. It's like an like Saigon 2.0 and it's rather embarrassing and other countries are starting to seriously doubt our capacity to intervene in a functional way in other countries business um, regardless this is the fearless mindset of the private security industry um, they talk about political unrest in this country as if it happens in a vacuum with law and order being the only standards for a civilized society individuals like Seabrook understand people being upset and having the right to voice their opinions or so he claims but the repetition of such protests and the anger behind them is a bit too much and law enforcement is overworked slash overwhelmed according to Seabrook and uh, Letlow and their prioritization of the needs and mental health of law enforcement over that of citizens uh, in other words you know trained professionals over amateurs uh, even if protesters are described as potential ISIS trainees in this podcast, it's ridiculous. That kind of uh, prioritization speaks to the fearless mindset that this industry promotes. Uh, it's a kind of super cop mentality uh, and a blue, th blue thin line uh, ethos, right? Um, you take care of your own and everyone else is a potential threat, if not potential enemy or client. As if advocating for more repressive state apparatuses wasn't enough, Ledlow and Seabrook also claimed that politicians and higher-ups are not allowing police to do their jobs, and although he has nothing but sympathy for those in the field trying to do their job, such negligence opens a door for private security, like the company he owns. He never imagined that he would have to bring all that military training to a place like Minnesota because he apparently isn't too good at intel gathering, otherwise he'd know that veterans are also organizing to overthrow the federal government, like on January 6th. And yet there's no mention of that in the interview, um, only that the nation is burning, thereby necessitating private security services like the one he provides to protect the nation, uh, just like the protection offered by another security firm, Covered 6 linked to that also in the show notes uh which provided security in beverly hills during the 2020 elections in conjunction with the beverly hills police department and isn't that nice for the rich to be double secured that way just in case ledlow reminds us that minneapolis is full of corporate interests that need protecting and seabrook keeps calling the situation quote surreal multiple times during the interview especially because he cannot comprehend the momentum of anger that, quote, keeps this going over and over again. Although he acknowledges that, quote, something happens to uh, spur this on. But he uh, fails to mention what those things could be, like cops killing people without cause. Um, to Seabrook, uh, one should voice their opinion through san state-sanctioned means, like a piece of protest, and I guess then you just go home. Uh, Seabrook then uh, has the audacity to say that the Winston Smith, uh, that Winston Smith was wanted on suspicion of murder, which is untrue, and uh, uses this extrajudicial murder as the reason he's patrolling uptown. Uh, the slander against Smith is probably why the episode got taken down. I'm not sure, but uh, that's great uh, intel by security experts. So, 
Even the Star Tribune, as bad as a newspaper that is, retracted the story Seabrook reproduced publicly. Uh, and it's even more absurd to think that Seabrook's claim that the North Star Fugitive Task Force didn't have body cams uh, at the time of Smith's killing is because the task force couldn't afford body cams. I mean, he says that on the podcast, which is just stupid. Uh, because we know that these coordinated efforts under the Department of Homeland Security received ample funding. So I doubt that they couldn't afford uh, body cams, and that's why it was going to take a while for them to implement that uh, rescinded policy. Finally, as if this slander against protesters being somehow equivalent to trained foreign combatants wasn't enough, both Ledlow and Seabrook ignore the actions of citizens who actually kill people with AR-15s. Antifa and BLM are discussed as the real terroristic threats, while people like Kyle Rittenhouse are simply not referenced. And though the failed coup of January 6 uh, is mentioned, uh, it's only referred to as an example of what protesters in general might do, not what the actual people who were there did, and what ideology, ideologies motivated them, and who they actually were, like various cops and veterans who are not being charged with federal crimes for storming the Capitol. So that's not discussed, but you know, it, uh, it is referenced as something that could happen in general by any quote-unquote protester. So in order to justify his claims that Antifa and Black Lives Matter pose the most dangerous threat to the nation in the tradition of terrorist organizations like ISIS and the Taliban, Seabrook claims that he found, quote, barriers around the Winsmarie Peace Garden that are akin to anti-tank barriers used on the beaches of Normandy during World War II. I mean, this guy may be a professional gangster for capitalism, to quote General Butler, but Seabrook also comes across as ignorant and somewhat hysterical for even trying to make the false equivalence between citizens on the streets of Minneapolis and the Nazi war machine. It's seriously unprofessional and irresponsible, but Ledlow, the podcast host, loves it. And Seabrook never mentions that those, quote, barriers were there because Diana had been killed by a vehicular assault. I mean, that's hypocritical in addition to being ignorant. Seabrook also brags that for anyone that's trying to find him, because Mark Ledlow asks him the, you know, Typical question like, where can people find you? Stuff like that. See, Brooks says that, well, you can't. You know, you can't find him or his company. And he says that the information you will find is, is minimal. So, honestly, it seems like we know enough about Nathan Seabrook already with minimal effort. So, I can only imagine what a deep dive would reveal. But since we're at the hour mark, uh, we're not going to do that. And we're honestly kind of tired of Seabrook and his ridiculous analogies anyway. And my main point in covering Seabrook is to highlight the fearless mindset that is promoted within the private security industry. I mean, these people are ex-military or ex-law enforcement soldiers of fortune, making money protecting private property and wealthy people. I mean, they even say it, right? The last thing they're interested in is protecting a functioning democracy that that part of their service, if they ever did serve, is over with. Now, they're part of the private security industry, and uh, except that they actually enjoy certain protections that are offered to law enforcement agents, like some qualified immunity and the right to apprehend and arrest citizens, all in front of actual cops. So it's obvious that cops work in coordination with these private firms and that they receive special treatment from law enforcement since they are viewed as providing supplemental security. Uh, thus, they provide a type of support for local law enforcement, like the Beverly Hills example. This creates a dangerous mindset in which law enforcement and private security view citizens as, const as constant threats uh, that rise to the level of trained terroristic threats, right? They essentially frame the tensions as equivalent to a war zone, thus creating a narrative that consists of at least two groups. And one of these groups is going to be framed as the enemy, 
And that group does not include people like Uptown Steve. Uh, they include young people and activists. And what's more disturbing is the emerging trend of having hate groups like the Proud Boys provide private security for anti-vaxxers and pro-Trump activists who assault random people, as happened in Los Angeles this past weekend. We're recording on August 15th. This is an emerging trend in the United States and one that highlights the intensifying authoritarian practices being taken by the state and extremist groups. Uh, this isn't the end of this unfortunate story and uh, I have absolutely no faith that Joe Biden is going to be the president to bring an end to this kind of uh, private security industry and some of the abuses around it especially in the context of something like the Proud Boys being one of these uh, security groups that is now popularly being recruited to provide security at extremist events like anti-vaxxers um, or impeachment recall slash rigged election protests by uh, pro-Trump uh, individuals. Um, but that will do it for this two-part episode at least. Uh, Make sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode or show. You can find us on SoundCloud, YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes Podcast. Uh, you can also find our show notes at theidentityparadox.com. That's all one word. Uh, that's a website. Uh, and thanks again for uh, tuning in. Uh, stay frosty, watch your six, and we'll catch you next time. Hasta luego y gracias.